This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson, and Cam Thompson as they seize the world of crypto. Hello and welcome to the Carpe Consensus podcast. My name is Ben Schiller and this is a podcast from the Coindesk Podcast Network and I am joined by the estimable Danny Nelson today. Hi, Danny. How does one estimate the value of a Danny Nelson? Is it in goats? Is it in gold? How do you do it? I don't it's know. It's hardly measurable. And I think that's why it's called inestimable. Estimable. <laughs> uh, and also uh, the very talented Cam Thompson is also joining our podcast today. Hi, Cam. Hey, how's it going? Okay, we're going to talk about a couple of uh, newsy things today. And you're going to start with Twitter, which now is known as X. So Danny, uh, yes or no? Absolutely not. Dumb, 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 dumb. I don't like it. Move on. Cam, what do you think? Well, first of all, it's actually been quite a struggle because when I look at my tabs open in my browser, you know, I'm going in between former Twitter and now X all the time to just look at news, see what people are talking about. And I can barely find it now because it has that ugly X. Also, it's the branding of a lot of other websites that have other purposes. And it's really unfortunate. It's very, very similar. And I think the branding choice was terrible. It is not clever whatsoever. It's not XXX, it's just X. Though. No, but you know, with all these no. hamster races these days, it might just end up being X hamster. Can't have that. All right, let's look at another fluffy uh, news oh, item. God. What about WorldCoin? This is a startup from uh, the AI Ubermensch at Sam Altman of ChatGPT. And they have launched this orb, which is a biometric device that takes a ID of you or registers an ID of you and then creates a coin, which is said to be the basis of a universal basic income for everybody. And it's kind of a funny like one-two hit here where Altman is at one point um, automating the world and putting us all out of work, and at the same time uh, giving us free coins to apparently make up for that. What do you think about that, Cam? You know, I think it's interesting to see the intersection of crypto and AI become a little bit more tangible. However, it is a very interesting strategy, right? Sam Altman's created this product. You know, OpenAI is huge. It's going to be implemented in so many more products in the next coming months. But, you know, to do that and then just give back this this coin, which I don't know what kind of value it's really going to have. I mean, we're going to have to see, but it's interesting. Um, the orb's cool. I think that's awesome. I'd love to check that out. Love, love to hold that in my hands. Would you assent to put your eyeball next to the orb uh, for it to take registration of your identity? I need to do more research first. I'm not going to lie. But, no, you um, don't. No, you don't. You do, do not I? need to do more research. You don't need to look into the orb. Only Facebook and or the United States government gets our retinas, also Apple and everyone else. We can't let the AI boys also take our data. They're the AI girls as well. They can't take our data. Yeah, uh, I think this is pretty creepy, 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 creepy. But we shall see how it works out. Any other fluff and nonsense you want to talk about, Danny? When you rebrand a company, that makes sense, but you want to do it with more than just, okay, there's a new logo, there's a new name. You want to have a new feature or something else to it. This seems to just be, all right, we're going to call it X now. That whole Twitter thing that's globally recognizable with a very good logo and a very prominent brand, we're going to get rid of that for a letter that is not copyrightable. 
So this is just from a marketing standpoint, there's no rhyme or reason to it. Why would you get rid of something that's so well known without having any immediate plan for changing radically how the thing works? Exactly. Well, he does have the URL though, doesn't he? He has the x.com, which is a pretty good URL. So, I mean, that's one well, good reason for doing it. He does. And you're just going to get all the people who got lost on their way to the porn sites to end up on Twitter. That's no good. Another thing I want to add to is that when Facebook rebranded to Meta, that was obviously a little bit controversial at first, but it was more tangible. You know, Meta, Metaverse, it was a part of their Horizon Worlds initiative, which they're still building upon, no matter how ridiculous Zuckerbot-esque it might be. But still, what did X bring? A lot of confusion and similarity to porn sites. I mean, we shouldn't give up the letter X to, uh, you know, a lot of TNA out there. So, I mean, you know, we can reclaim the letter X uh, for a more wholesome purpose. Uh, Twitter is not a more wholesome purpose. No, if anything, absolutely it's less not. So. <laughs> okay. And, and also, speaking of the logo itself, I think it's worth noting the guy who designed the logo has now been fired. That was, that was fake. Was it? Okay. Yeah, that was fake. You can't. Well, you know, I you know what? I, I, I think it's real. And what I think, if I think it's real, then, you know, it really is. That it's not the it's the truthiness of the thing. Does it feel truthful? Not is it truthful? That's what we've learned in America. Right. Dear listeners, uh, we create our own reality here on Carpe Consensus. And uh, never mind what the truth is of the matter. We are right in our force field of reality. All right, we're going to go inside the desk now, and we are joined by a former Coindesk reporter and a former director of media and strategy at Compass Mining, uh, that is Will Foxley, and he is still a regular on The Hash, which is a daily program on Coindesk TV. Welcome to the show, Will. Thanks, Ben. Great to talk with you again. Good to talk to you. Um, It's good to have a professional on here uh, and to raise the standard. This week at Coindesk is Mining Week. Uh, We've got about 30 stories on our website going up all about the industry of mining and all the complexities of that, you know, know, the environmental questions, the question of profitability in the mining sector, and really the role that mining plays as a basis for the decentralization ecosystem that we all know and love. So, Will, uh, just give us a sense of where the mining industry is at these days. I mean, it seemed that when the price of Bitcoin was falling last year, a lot of these miners, which are publicly traded, uh, were getting into difficulty. Um, can you give us a sense of where they've been and where, where they are now? Yeah, great pun there with the difficulty. Love it. Uh, there's been a lot of problems with mining. And I think right now, we've had a nice breath, right? There's a, there's a pause. There's basically a sprint during the bull market where everyone was focusing on purchasing orders. They're focusing on getting machines. They're focusing on getting facilities, energy contracts. And then the floor price of Bitcoin collapsed. Uh, there was some struggles with that happening, but really what took down the industry was when the debt payments uh, began being due with the federal interest rate hikes. So we saw a lot of miners who had made these huge purchase orders, who had made these huge facility deposits, who had made large energy contracts, and they were getting squeezed on not only the Bitcoin price side, which all miners know that it's cyclical, but also on the interest rate side. These companies had gone out and made huge, huge loans or taken out huge loans and facing 5% interest rates on these loans or even variable up to 20% depending on your loan structure. And it more or less just killed these miners. And so we saw the collapse of a few, the largest being Core Scientific that went into Chapter 11, it's the largest North American-based miner, and then a few others that had to just outright restructure and sell off huge assets like Argo Blockchain. 
that was about six months ago now. So it was November, December, Collapse FTX really brought a lot of those things to the wall. Now we're past that. Bitcoin's at 30K. A lot of uh, bad debt has been washed out. A lot of the bad operators are now unemployed and looking for different ventures. And the, the key players are still here. That's not to say that there isn't still problems in the industry and there isn't still a lot of price pressure. We'd love for Bitcoin to be double what it is right now. But a lot of the miners, specifically the public ones that we have great data on, they're actually doing fairly well. They're mining Bitcoin for around thirteen dollars to $15,000 per coin on the extended side. And uh, they're able to make a profit. So we have the prospect of the halving coming up, uh, well, probably next April. Uh, what will that do to the industry? I mean, it's going to halve the reward from uh, you know, mining a single Bitcoin. So presumably that will hurt their profits. Yeah, we're going to see basically the economics change against miners very quickly. You know, with one stroke of a block, uh, the entire game changes where the rewards you get are cut in half. Uh, on the Bitcoin level. So if you're denominating in BTC, if you're denominating USD, we don't quite know yet, right? We still have a good little bit to figure out what Bitcoin price is going to be like. But if we take uh, values from the past and values based on right now as information, it's going to be a squeeze. And a lot of these miners are not going to be prepared for that difficulty. Some things that they're sort of leaning into are one, becoming more efficient. So miners are leaning into purchasing cheaper units right now. And they're buying more efficient units, trying to get the joules per terahash as low as possible. For reference here, joules per terahash is a metric that miners use to understand how efficient their miner is. So the input of energy over terahash value, which is essentially you can think of it as like the amount of Bitcoin you can mine over a certain period of time. And if you get that value as low as possible, then your units are more efficient. And then the energy side, miners are always scrappy, looking for more energy. A lot of these energy contracts were purchased during the last cycle, however, or even before that. So they're more or less locked in. So the energy is pretty constrained. All right, just one more question before I open it up to the floor here. I mean, what about the kind of whole environmental question? We've got people like Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren leading a anti-crypto army. And we've seen some various skirmishes uh, from state to state, environmentalists attacking mining, saying, you know, why are we using all this energy for mining, et cetera, et cetera. How does that play into the outlook for mining going forward? Yeah, great question. It's one of my favorite, actually, because I, th- I think it brings into crypto in a significant way a lot of past histories within American culture into one specific subset of the Bitcoin history that is Bitcoin mining. So we like to talk in Bitcoin mining about how there's all these jobs bringing in. We have all like, these rural areas that are being revitalized, and it's a lot of blue-collar workers and these areas have blue collar workers and they have cheap energies so Bitcoin miners are moving in there. And on this other side, we have like this more leftist thought, right, where we shouldn't be using this sort of energy for, for mining Bitcoin. We should be using this energy for uh, more utilitarian purposes that serve society. And so we have these clash of like two ideals, right, where uh, the right side is more in favor of adding more jobs, adding more infrastructure, bringing jobs back to the United States. And on the left side, we have hey, we need to focus on the climate. We need to uh, build things that actually are bettering society, not, the, not this digital currency. I think this debate is just going to continue to play out. We're going to see a balkanization of Bitcoin mining within the United States, and we already have. So you know, it's not really a huge statement at, at all. The bigger states are leaning to Bitcoin mining are almost exclusively in the South. Texas, Kentucky, Georgia, those are all huge Bitcoin mining states. And then there's a few other areas within the Midwest that are just also interested in bringing manufacturing, high energy jobs, high paying jobs back into the area. So 
Illinois somewhat on that side. There's some Illinois Bitcoin mining activities, but Ohio is a really big player to watch. They're adding a lot of Bitcoin mining to that state. New York, California, Oregon, Washington, Hawaii. These are states you're not really going to associate with Bitcoin mining as much. So we're seeing a classic uh, red blue schism here. Yeah, that's what I think, honestly. And I think a lot of people didn't want to say it, but I think you have to look at it and look at the politicians on Twitter talking about it. And at the end of the day, that's what it is. Ted Cruz is talking about Bitcoin mining. Uh, and then Elizabeth Warren is talking about it, but on the other foot. And maybe there's politicians that come out here and are willing to meet in the middle ground. We've certainly seen that with DeFi and stable coins and some other crypto innovations where there's a bipartisan take on it. But so far, Bitcoin mining has almost been the most decisive issue when it comes to politics in the US for cryptocurrency. How much of a jobs creator is the mining industry? Like, there's jobs to set up a plant. But if, you, if you've got, I don't know, what's a reasonably sized off-mining operation? Yeah, so a reasonable size Bitcoin mining operation really depends on how complex you make it. So how easy you're going to make it for yourself. I right, well, say so that I'll, from experience. I, I've been to the, okay, so I've been to the BitDeer one outside of Austin, Texas. I don't know how big it is, but it, like, they've got these shipping containers full yeah. of mining units. They're blowing air through a waterfall, it seems, to cool it. How many people every day do, does a place like that take to operate it? Like, is there a yeah. jobs component? Like, we're bringing Bitcoin mining here. That's going to bring us jobs. How big of an employer is the mining industry? It's one to two people per megawatt, sort of the rule of thumb, uh, what people use. And a reasonable size Bitcoin mining operation is probably between five and 15 megawatts. It's a lot to manage. It's a ton of machines. The bigger ones that we see on the news, like in Rockdale, Texas with Riot, and then the BitDeer one you're speaking about, which is also in Rockdale, Texas, those are 500 megawatts, 750 megawatts. And this is huge amounts of energy. So it's, it's definitely a lot of jobs. It's not as much as you'd get probably in a high-performance uh, computing sector or a similar sector within computation, but it's not a trivial amount either, right? Like These are still jobs that often don't need more than a high school level of education, and it's also typically better paying than a lot of other places. A lot of times I go to these sites in West Texas or in rural America. And these Bitcoin miners are paying 20 to 30% more than the next best job in the county. So, Will, I have a question for you. And I want to jump off of something that Ben was talking about earlier, you know, with the halving coming up and the block rewards being decreased. You know, there's this competition to mine as much as possible right now before this happens. And, you know, unsure of the circumstances or at least the consequences it'll have post-halving. Yeah, I, I think overall the halving is a good thing, right? There's, there's a few things that go into it. And- we can discuss this for a second. The reason people don't like the halvening in terms of Bitcoin mining is because like your friends might go out of business because it's such a tough environment, like your colleagues and coworkers or other businesses you've worked with. If you don't have the best and most efficient mining operation, well, I'm sorry, like it's a competitive game and you're out till the next inning or you can figure it out. In terms of positives here, I think it's a positive for Bitcoin, right? We want to have a lower issuance for Bitcoin. Uh, it's competing not only against other coins, but also against the US dollar. And the more that Bitcoin moves towards a lower issuance, the better the tokenomics of Bitcoin can become if you look at it from, from that standpoint. And then just in terms of the mining industry itself, with every happening, the Bitcoin mining network becomes more efficient. Yes, there's always going to be an uptrend in energy pull by the network. But the fact is, as happening comes, well, you have to buy better machines. You have to move towards cheaper energy, which is often stranded energy or renewable energy. 
And so overall, the Bitcoin network becomes something that's actually easier to defend on a political level because it's becoming more efficient. As part of Mining Week, you wrote a very nice op-ed for us looking at a particular problem, as you see it, uh, which is that these miners are largely publicly traded and they play this kind of uh, press release game of issuing announcements that turn out to be less true than they might be. And uh, you point to a particular case. Do you want to talk about that? And maybe we can jump into some of the other examples. Yeah, definitely. So this is a huge thing within Bitcoin mining circles and probably should be talked about more within other circles as well. Uh, Bitcoin miners often are publicly traded. And when they are publicly traded, they want people to buy their shares. Why? Well, we could get into that probably for the reason you guys are thinking, which is if you have a higher share price, well, your company has a little bit more of a protective capital moat. But on the other side of this, we also know that Bitcoin miners themselves are just doing it because they want more interest in their companies. And how do you do that? Well, you lean into the latest narrative. Back in 2017 and 2018, we saw a lot of this as well, right? With like, the traditional companies. We had like the Long Island iced tea blockchain company. It's like, why did they do that? A true well, classic. It, a true it is classic. a classic, right? And, and it points to a larger incentive problem with not just tokens, but anyone who's in the industry and can even go public. The SEC slapped that company for doing so. Years later, we had the same problems. In 2021 and 2022, we had huge purchase order announcements sent over press releases. Now, anyone can send a press release. It's not that difficult. And oftentimes, this information is just completely false. Bitcoin miners leaned into this by making, you know, talking nine-digit orders for machines that they had no ability to actually purchase and would later default on. They made lots of different announcements uh, talking about like the huge things they were going to do. Oftentimes, those things pump the stock of the underlying miner it was associated with. And then these miners were able to fund their businesses more strategically because they had much more capital. Now, there's some other miners who didn't do that, right? They stopped issuing press releases. They didn't like that. They leaned into the more conservative side of the industry. And they also took care of their shareholders a little bit better. And I think you can see those miners rising to cream of the crop right now. Uh, some of the miners who chose to go the other way, having a hard time keeping shareholders interested because of the history of malfeasance. So the particular example I was talking about is uh, the Nasdaq-listed Sphere 3D, uh, which was said to have bought $1.7 billion worth of new miners, a mining machine that turned out to be, uh, is it fair to say, fake? Or, I mean, at least something nobody had ever heard of, right? Yeah, 100% fake. Uh, I think Coindesk even covered this at the time. So this is sort of the most extreme case out there. And it's maybe unfair to bring it up, but it is uh, it shows a symptom of like the larger industry and the larger problem here. So back in February 2022, Sphere 3D, a publicly listed miner, uh, said that it was inking a deal with a new miner to purchase $1.7 billion worth of these machines. This machine didn't exist. The company behind it had gone out, stolen images from another company, had put some sort of marketing graphic design on top of it, which... Uh, had the colors of Mountain Dew, and therefore the machine became known as the Mountain Dew Miner to everyone heckling on Twitter. Uh, and then Sphere 3D quickly realized that they had announced a purchase order for a machine that didn't exist. From my understanding, they just didn't have the intimate knowledge of the industry. They were players in the industry that had jumped into here from other sectors and thought they were you know, landing a huge deal. This machine had crazy efficiency, crazy power, crazy performance. And so they thought they were going to make a huge swoop here. The $1.7 billion figure here 
can be broken down a few different ways. I think the original purchase order was something around $50 million. And then there was options to purchase up to $1.7 billion worth of this machine through like stock trading and stuff like that. The point being, however, that we have a fake machine with a huge purchase order number. And then we saw the stock of Sphere 3D go up almost 50% in one day and then trickle down afterwards. All these things matter because they point to a larger problem within the Bitcoin mining industry, which is retail. And even the executives, apparently, at companies have no idea what's going on in Bitcoin mining. They don't understand the machines. They don't understand the industry. They don't understand energy. And they make announcements to shareholders who really are putting their money into this because they want exposure to Bitcoin mining. And they often are the ones who are taking the losses for the failure to educate the retail shareholders in the first place. Right. I mean, do you think that these announcements about you know pivoting to AI and high-performance high computing, do you think they are similar to those? Yeah. So I, I definitely like withheld judgment for a little bit. This has been going on for about a year. So it's not only that this is a newer thing, but a, a few companies have been talking about this since the Ethereum merged in September of 2022. Uh, there was a few Bitcoin miners who also operated Ethereum mining on the side. And they said, all along, we're going to keep mining Ethereum until the merge happens, and then we'll change to high-performance compute or AI or 3D rendering. A lot of people looked at this at the time and were like, that's not possible. These are different industries. You can't quite do that. But these Bitcoin miners kept saying, hey, we can do it. We'll figure it out. Come to now, January of 2023 and up through July this year, and it's become very apparent that, no, it's not that easy to swap from mining Ethereum with basically retail-level GPUs into AI rendering, which demands enterprise-level GPUs and components. To purchase these NVIDIA units right now is a six-month order process, and maybe you get them. Everyone's desiring them. So I would say, for the most part, take all these announcements with a huge grain of salt, uh, and maybe a few more than that. Thank you for that public health warning. So uh, just going forward, I mean, if you had a billion dollars and you wanted to invest in something Bitcoin related, would mining be your bet? I mean, not that this is investment advice, but just... Uh... Will, I'd like some investment advice. If I had a billion dollars, what should I do with it? Oof. I don't know if I'd mine Bitcoin, honestly. Bitcoin mining is very hard and I've done it in a few different ways. I've done it at a personal level at my house. I built a little Bitcoin mining box. I bought some ASICs. I plugged it into a wall. I had electrician come out and like wire up my house to be able to do that. Turns out electricity in Colorado is like 14 cents per kilowatt hour, which is about double the price of energy for what I need. Didn't make a lot of money, but maybe on Bitcoin moons, I make my money back. I've also done it on the hosting side and that can work. It can also not work because you are basically a contract on top of a contract on top of another contract, right? Like you're basically at the bottom of the, of the barrel in terms of being the customer there. So it can be difficult. It can work out. And if you're working with the right company, it can work out, but it's definitely a difficult enterprise. If I had a billion dollars, that's even difficult as well. There's a huge history of scams and frauds and mining, not only publicly, but also within the industry where lots of companies rip each other off. So if you're looking at it from those perspectives, I would say maybe just buy Bitcoin unless you have a pretty high risk tolerance and want to jump into the thick of it. So thank you very much, Will Foxley, for coming on the show and talking about mining and all things related. So Will Foxley's op-ed is appearing in Mining Week, which is actually sponsored by Foundry. We better mention them. And check it out on coindesk.com. Thank you, Will. Thanks, guys. Talk soon. 
Okay, dear listeners, it's time for my favorite part of the show, which is, well, I, sorry, I shouldn't say that because uh, I like Cam's part of the show too. All right. Oh, so we're going to Danny's. Okay, that's fine. Okay, okay, okay. All right, dear listeners, it's time for a fabulous part of the show, which is uh, Danny's dungeon. What do you have for us this week, Danny? Well, today, to enter the dungeon, we are all going to need to subject ourselves to retinal scans. Uh, you will be given coins that you can redeem for hamster races at the conclusion of the show. But welcome to the dungeon. We are talking, as we often do, about DAOs doing dumb things. You know, I haven't seen the DAO do a not dumb thing, but... Dumb one, DAOs. Yes, dumb DAOs. The D in DAO stands for dumb DAO. It's actually like it folds in on itself, right? Like Inception. Inside the word DAO, there's another DAO. And inside of that DAO, there is Parrot Party, which raised $80 million at the height of the Solana craze in 2021 to build... I don't know. I guess DeFi, lending markets, who knows? The point is that the DAO really hasn't built much of anything useful in the two years since, and the developers haven't spent all that much of the money. There's about $73 million of the treasury left, $80 million to 73 over two years. That's not so bad. Uh, we've definitely seen worse. But the DAO is now folding, and they're going to return the money to investors, except they're only going to return one-tenth of the money the investors put in, and the remainder will be split up among the founding team and associates. So a lot of people are saying, look at this, this is just a, a rug pull, right? You took our money, now you're going to give us back pennies on the dollar. What do we have to show for it? What do you think about this, Ben? Well, I mean, I think the question is, uh, should we blame the instigators of this dumb DAO, or should we blame all the dupes who uh, got into this uh, mess. I mean, aren't they kind of pretty stupid for investing it in the first place? Well, are they any more or less stupid than anyone else who's ever invested in an IDL or an uh, ICO? Well, I mean, presumably you would want a clear roadmap of, uh, you know, product development and something useful to come out at the end of it. And it doesn't seem from what you said that uh, they had this. But I think the broader point is, even if they did, like they did have a white paper, they said they were going to do the th these things. They didn't say we're going to do this in month two, this in month three, this in month four, but they said we're going to build a lending market. They really haven't succeeded and they haven't done much to do anything for it. Like the developer in charge, he doesn't want to deal with the DAO all the time. So he has office hours for two hours once a week where he will answer questions in the Discord. And he doesn't answer any questions at all outside of the outside of that window. Sounds so, like a good job if you can get it. Yeah, he gets paid like six hundred grand a year or something ridiculous to wow. answer questions. So yeah, I don't know. I'm just I'm I'm just getting sick of all this. I think we should have Gary Gensler come in and regulate the crap out of these guys, at least when it comes to fundraising for your business through a token sale. Like it's a pretty clear cut example right there when you're making promises to investors about what you're going to build and how you're going to build it, how their money is going to help you, which is what they did here. There 100% should be some regulations around making sure that these people are doing what they say they're going to do. Quite right. I mean, has there been any kind of regulatory enforcement against DAOs uh, so far? I don't remember hearing anything. Well, there have been a couple of instances where the, like the CFTC tries to bring the hammer down on DAOs that say 
violated prohibitions on trading in the US markets, but that's a little different than a fundraising example. So the clearest line you can draw here is right back to 2017 in the ICO craze when all these different companies were funding themselves through token sales. That played itself out again in 2021. So in projects like this where, you know, they get a lot of funds during the bull market, people are excited about it, they have a lot of hype, there's a lot of hype around the Solana ecosystem, also DeFi in general. How do projects like Parrot, like others you've seen, kind of get away with just hanging on and delivering the bare minimum or not delivering anything? You know, what did it take for people to realize that Parrot was actually in the gutter and wasn't delivering on any of its said promises? Well, people have realized in the Solana ecosystem for a while, it's been sort of the butt of jokes for a good bit of time. It's hard to tell what caused it here, but I think it's safe to say that a lot of investors have been angry for a very long time. And these things, when you're a parrot, these chickens come home to roost. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. I think on that note, we should end this segment. Uh, thank you, Danny, for taking us deep into the dungeon once again. All right, Cam's Corner. Cam's Corner is going multi-chain as everyone else is in the crypto space, but this time it's looking quite interesting. So Exchange Art, the leading fine digital art marketplace on Solana, has just announced that they are expanding into Ethereum. Why is that interesting, Cam? So it's interesting because Exchange Art, you know, it started on Solana. Solana had a very vibrant NFT ecosystem at one point in time. And over the past year, that has gone down quite a bit. Granted, NFT trading volumes across the entire ecosystem, you know, across different chains have gone down. But it's very interesting that this project that, you know, originated on Solana and garnered a lot of attention from Solana-based artists is now going to tap into Ethereum, which is the largest NFT ecosystem to date. And when I spoke with the COO of Exchange Art, she said that this was always their plan. However, it's quite interesting that they had started on Solana in the first place. It was always their plan to expand into Ethereum. It wouldn't necessarily make sense if they could have done that on Ethereum, which has always had the largest trading volume in NFTs. Cam, don't people always say uh, we were planning to do this anyway when they do something like this? And isn't that invariably not the case? Exactly. It's very interesting. We hear this a lot, especially given the bear market, a lot of companies are changing their strategies. So just take note when someone says that, when someone says we've always planned on doing this, might not be the case. Danny, I want to hear your thoughts as the Solana expert. You know, how have you seen NFTs on Solana change over the past year? Well, I'm not super plugged into NFTs on Solana, but I will say that trading volumes on Solana are down bad. A lot of the activity, a lot of the liquidity that was in the NFT ecosystem on Solana has moved into other parts, excavating the outflow of capital from Solana-based art. So very unsurprising to me that Exchange.art is trying to make a name for itself in the Ethereum land too. Who would be the most direct competitor for what Exchange.art is doing? Like, Would it be OpenSea or would it be one of those other exchanges? So it would be more of an art-focused NFT marketplace. So Let's take a super rare, which focuses on digital art. Another platform could be, in a way, art blocks. You know, generative art does exist on this art marketplace, exchange.art. And obviously, art blocks isn't a marketplace itself, but they help artists facilitate a lot of those mints, which exchange.art does as well. So it's interesting in that sense. There are a lot of ecosystems within Ethereum. 
and also its various side chains and layer twos. There was another project called Prohibition Art that just launched last week, which is essentially art blocks on Arbitrum. Anyways, it's an interesting strategy. I think that it'll be worth taking a look at the artists that join who are collaborating with Exchange.Art as well as their trading volumes to see if there is any increase or decrease in their ability and how they're going to capture that already very thriving digital art ecosystem on Ethereum. All right. Well, watch this space. Thank you, Cam. That was Cam's Corner. Always something crazy going on in the NFT world, as I always say, and it never fails to disappoint. So make sure you catch us next week. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Danny. And if you like us, if you are enjoying listening to Carpe Consensus, leave us a review. Just tell us what you want to hear more of. If you have any questions, we'd love to answer them. All right. Catch you all later. Bye. 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 Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production, executive produced by Jared Schwartz and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com. Subject line, Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening and see you next week.